coming to you from 1982, it's Wine Insiders with Sniff, Sip, Repeat, a monthly podcast for lively discussions all about wine. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry experts, from vineyards and tasting rooms to restaurant and retail, to give you a little inspiration for what to pour next. I'm your host, Kristen, and I've worked in the wine industry for a few years now, so I'm excited to bring conversations with my peers directly to you. Are you ready? Let's take an anniversary sip. 1982. Wine Insiders is celebrating our 39th anniversary this year, so for today's episode, we're going to go old school, then old world. One of our guiding principles is authenticity. Behind every bottle are real winemakers, storied vineyards, and authentic flavors. Behind our curation is real talent. We launched this podcast to share these real stories with you, so for our anniversary edition, we're going to go old school and introduce you to our very first ever Wine Insiders panelist. We'll hear his origin story, a journey from wine newbie to sommelier at the French Laundry, a restaurant created by the legendary chef Thomas Keller in the heart of California's wine country. Next, we'll go old school and journey back to 1982, the year our very first customers placed orders for wine, and a very famous vintage year for Bordeaux and Burgundy. Finally, we'll talk about these world-renowned appellations in France and taste all the flavors of them. We'll uncork four excellent wines in our collection. Our guest today is Chris Howell, founder of Harper's Club, a bespoke wine firm offering its clientele expert curation for creating the finest private wine collections in the world. He's also our first panelist. If you've spent any time on our website or at our events, you've seen Chris tasting wines from our collection or teaching our customers how to sniff, sip, and repeat. So hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. How is everyone? Good. Good. We're doing really good. We're so excited to have you for the anniversary. Also joining me today as co-host is Nick, who helps me produce our podcast. Among his many contributions, he also authors the occasional blog article for us. So Nick is currently knee-deep in 80s nostalgia in preparation for our anniversary celebration. So hello, Nick. Hello, hello. I hope everybody's totally tubular out there today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Radical. Um, Before we get started on today's episode about Bordeaux and Burgundy. I want to explain how we curate a collection at Wine Insiders has always been critical to our mission. So several years ago, when we decided to take curation to new heights, it was pretty natural that we turned to Chris for his expertise. I want to talk to Chris about his background because we've done a few events together. And I remember one event in particular where we were with, you were doing a Facebook live with Martha Stewart and Bruno Lafon, and you were telling the audience how you came to discover your passion for wine in a basement in St. Louis while playing pool. (laughs) So I thought that would be a fun way to start the show. Um, That sounds very vintage. And there's probably more to the story, so you can expand on what I've already heard. Yeah, uh, it's funny. You wouldn't think that that would be the likely genesis of a budding sommelier, but it was. And at the time, I was working at a country club. It was called Belle Reve uh, in Ledoux, Missouri. And there, I was working with a gentleman named Miguel, a good friend of mine. And one night, I don't know why, he said, let's grab a bottle of wine and come over to my house. We'll smoke some cigars and we'll hang out. And I was like, sounds, sounds good, but should I bring some beer as well? Uh, wine was really foreign to me, all the wine that I'd had previous uh, to this particular glass of wine that changed my life was the, you know, the, the Palme Son that was uh, underneath the sink that my mom used to nip off of. And I think it made a better vase for flowers than it did a, a vessel for wine. <laughs> but that's for another day. I didn't, I just didn't have that good glass of wine yet. It, it just, it was like someone flipped a switch 
and everything changed. And, you know, about halfway through the game, he pours this uh, glass of red wine, thick, looked like a thick red wine. And I remember taking a sip and I just never made it back to the pool table. It stopped me dead in my tracks and I wanted to know everything that I could about wine. The wine was a 1991 Sterling Three Palms Vineyard Merlot. But that was the beginning. And from there, I couldn't, you know, I would read Wine Spectator cover to cover and Decanter cover to cover. And I just couldn't get enough wine uh, knowledge in my brain. And it was like an obsession. But it's been a great journey. And it's all been, you know, paved with wine in, in one form or another. I just love that you were playing pool in a basement because I used to play pool in my best friend Mark's basement all the time in the 80s. We never had good wine. So it's really nice that you were introduced to it. So what many people who are listening may not know is how an amazing an arc of a career you had even before uh, Harvest Club, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got from there in an interest in wine to working with Thomas Keller at the French Laundry? Well, uh, so I stayed at the country club for probably another year, but I knew that um, I did not know anything about wine and I really needed uh, a good mentor. I found this one gentleman, his name was Bob Cable. He was the wine director at the Adams Mark Hotel, running the fine dining establishment there called Faust's. And we would sit down every night. He would open a bottle of Condrieu from the Northern Rhone and he would say, yeah, this is Viognier and this is why, this is what it looks like. And um, do you see the mouthfeel? Do you notice the aromatics, you know, taught me about structure. And really that was our little fun uh, event that we did almost every night as I was doing the books and he was kind of, you know, restocking the seller from the evening's uh, purchases. And it gave me the foundation that I have today. After about um, you know a year and a half, he really encouraged me to take my first level sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers. And uh, that was kind of my entry point, if you will, was the, the Court of Master Sommeliers and preparing and studying for that exam. I remember opening up a, uh, a wine spectator while I was working at Belle Reve and they had a little section. It was kind of... Uh, off to the right-hand side in the early pages called The Grapevine. And it would highlight industry news in wine. And I remember seeing a picture of uh, Joe Spellman who had just passed his master sommelier and he was working at Charlie Trotter's. And when you're in the Midwest, Charlie Trotter's was the, the French laundry of your day, so to speak. And I said, that's what I wanna do. I want to become a master sommelier and I wanna work at the best you know, restaurant in the United States. Lo and behold, on a dare, uh, someone saw a job posting on the Guildsom site for a position at the French Laundry. And I kind of totally laughed it off. My friend said, I dare you. I think you're a good candidate. I was like, they're never going to pick up a guy, you know, from the middle of uh, the country, from St. Louis to Beer Town, you know. But I did. And they called and then they called me back and then they flew me out there and uh, from May of 08 to July of 12, I had an amazing, amazing time uh, working as a sommelier at the French Laundry. Ah, that's fantastic. I love that, you know, being in St. Louis didn't stop you and that it didn't stop them. Like, that's fantastic. Because, and, and it changed my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Excellent. I'm curious if you go back to St. Louis and when you go back there, is there a restaurant now that you would call out, just give a shout out to that you think? either is an excellent fine dining experience or just has a great wine list, even if it's not fine dining. 
I really enjoy St. Louis. Um, you know, I spent 23 years there and it's definitely, you know, part of who I am. There is one in particular that everyone always put on a, uh, a pedestal, so to speak. And it was kind of like old school, fancy Italian, and it was called Tony's. And uh, they did a ton of table side, you know, uh, Caesar salad and uh, cherries jubilee and and all kinds of things table side just really old school Italian like that they had an amazingly deep wine list and not only Italian wines but but French and, and domestic and Spanish uh, and I always really liked going there especially if someone else was paying because it was uh, you know <laughs> in, in those times when I was earning it was you know a, a week's worth of pay and when I do go back I, I go back and I, I go to Tony's um, and it's a lot of fun. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It is hard to argue with enjoying a meal when someone else is paying. I've had a few of those, you know, now that I work in the wine industry and they're very nice. I think the last one I had was at Providence here in LA, which is an excellent restaurant. So now let's talk about Harper's Club, which is your current venture. Can you give us, I think I already gave a little introduction to our listeners, but why don't we hear from you, how you founded Harper's Club and what you do exactly? So Harper's Club is a bespoke concierge style Uh, wine company in which we work very white glove hand in hand with our clients and help develop their uh, collection it's it's at a very it's at a high level so uh, our average bottle price is probably around seven hundred dollars which is definitely rare air at the top but we're helping them find some of the the rarest and and most difficult uh to acquire wines from all over the world uh, most of them tend to be in the blue chip areas you know cold cabernet Sinapa, you know classified bordeaux grand cru burgundy etc cetera, etc cetera. and they just want to get right to the best with the best advice um with the best provenance and that's what harper's club is so chris i was really interested. I was uh, learning more about Harper's Club. I love, you know, all the services that you offer, including, you know, um, the bespoke travel planning and so forth. Um, But I was really interested to read the genesis for the Harper's name being held with your grandfather as a colonel in the army and is, you know, highly decorated. He was a marine aviator in World War II. Is that correct? Yeah, they just don't make them like this anymore. He was a, a Marine aviator. Uh, he served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, uh, and retired a full bird colonel in the Marine Corps. Two Purple Hearts, uh, Bronze Stars, Flying Crosses. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And the only medal or service acknowledgement that he did not get is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Know, shot down twice uh, over the South Pacific. And I remember him telling me stories of how that plane would then turn around and switch to guns while he was floating to the ocean. Uh, you know, and it wasn't good enough that they shot the plane down, that they were also came back to, to shoot him <laughs> while he was floating down to the sea and he survived all of that. Wow, uh, just, that's just incredible. Amazing. It is incredible. The guys that hung around my grandfather, they were a little bit more refined. They, you know, preferred single malt scotch to draft beer. I remember my grandmother when she would introduce me to some of his old fly colleagues. She would make a note 
to say he was in Harper's Club. And it made, it, it was something special to me when, when she would say that. And I would look at them in a different way. And I remember coming up for this name, I was like walking down the Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood near my house. And I had like a, a to-go gin and tonic and I was destined to come up with this name. And it just, it kept coming up and up and up. It's just, Harper's Club is, is where you go when you wanna be on the inside and get access to the best wines of the world and have you know, access to um, the knowledge that I've accumulated over the last you know, 25 years in my pursuit uh, to be the best sommelier that I could. I love the ties to family with that. And I, and I understand that uh, you also served in the army for a period I did. There. I did. So uh, I was one of four growing up in the Midwest, uh, you know, lower middle class. And uh, there was going to be no way that I was going to go to college unless I got a, you know, an academic scholarship uh, or an athletic scholarship, and none of those were on the board, and I needed a little discipline, so I decided to uh, pursue the GI Bill, and um, in typical obstinate fashion of mine, my, my other grandfather was a captain in the Navy, also just as distinguished as my mom's dad, who was a Fulberg colonel in the Marine Corps, I decided to go into the army and uh, I didn't want any handouts. I was and... going to ask you if you caught some flack <laughs> from, from, from the one grandfather, I, but I, I guess I, you caught I, it from both. <laughs> I know. I know enough military families to know that that, that, ha that rivalry happens. I wanted to carve my own path. I didn't want any handouts. I wanted to prove myself. I stayed an enlistment, uh, enlisted member of the army my whole career. Uh, it paid for a college every cent. I walked away with a, a finance degree that I never used, uh, but not a dime in debt. And so it served its purpose. Um, it gave me the discipline that I needed and uh, didn't shackle me with uh, financial burdens after the fact. One of the things I also know about you, in addition to military services, you've done a little bit of travel in France. So today we're going to talk about Bordeaux and Burgundy, and I'm guessing you have a lot of experience there. It, it's just so amazing how diverse that part of the world is. And, you know, when talking about Burgundy versus Bordeaux, they couldn't be any more different. Um, not only do you find uh, uh, the varietals are starkly in contrast, but the people are different. The, the way the towns and the vineyards are set up are completely different. And I love that, you know, and they're not that far apart. You know, it's probably a three, three hour train ride and you can go from Bordeaux to Burgundy. And, um, uh, they, they're different. So in Burgundy, you, you have more of this uh, very of the people uh, aspect and they're farmers and you don't see anyone driving around and, you know, Aston Martins or Ferraris or lavish, you know, country homes. Um, and in bad vintages, it can really, really hurt these uh, people that are living really on the margins, some of the smaller producers. And in contrast to Bordeaux, you know, that was founded by, you know, Dutch and English financiers and the, the banking families of the era, they are, you know, vast, you know, buildings and chateaus and kais, and you see a lot of money dripping all over the place uh, in most of the regions of Bordeaux. And it's also about five times bigger than Burgundy. So to get from one side of uh, Bordeaux to the other, 
you will fall asleep in that car because <laughs> it's about a, an hour and 45 minutes from point to point. Uh, and in Burgundy, it's so small, you want to get out of the car and walk. Uh, and in the area of Von Romani, where uh, eight of the best Grand Crus uh, in Burgundy exist, and I'm talking about, you know, Romani Conti and Latash and La Romani, uh, you, you sit there and you walk and you go about 50 yards and you're looking at Latash and you go about 25 yards and you're looking at Romani Conti. And you can walk through all of these Grand Cru's because if you drive by them, you blink and you'll miss it. It's so, so incredibly small. And that's when it dawns on you why Burgundy can be so expensive and so exclusive because you can't grow the region and it's very, very small. It's, a, it's incredibly small uh, when compared to Bordeaux. Biking is what I really recommend to do in, in Burgundy. Um, because it's just, you can cover the right amount of ground, you know, the ratio of your speed uh, to enjoying the surroundings is, I think, optimal. And, and, you know, if you've got the money, I think the best way to travel around in Bordeaux is by helicopter. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm one of those people that's a little terrified of helicopters, but... <laughs> I could do the bicycle thing with a basket. I think I would like that. A baguette. There you go. Some... A little baguette sticking yeah. out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And before you, I had you, you high cholesterol, some cheese. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. You, you laugh. You see that. Like that's really? what's cool about it. I yes, want that absolutely. to be me. Like sneakers you and do. a skirt and a baguette and a basket. You, you, you'll see a woman. She'll be, she'll, be wearing, she'll be wearing a dress. She'll probably have a, like a baby in the front. And then, yeah, out of her backpack in the back, there's literally a baguette shooting out. I and love you're like, it. Is 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 this staged? Is this like someone <laughs> shooting a movie right now? It is that. It is that real. It's pretty cool. I love it. Gosh, this is making me want to taste wines. What do you think, Nick? Are you ready to taste some wines? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I told Nick I was going to make him before we taste the wines take us down memory lane because the reason we're here today is in honor of our anniversary and Wine Insiders was. Uh, our first customers date back to 1982. Our company really are a wine club for enthusiasts that was started at a fondue restaurant in Chicago in 1982. And they just really wanted to get California wine. And so it was arranged that these wines from California would be found and put together for a club shipment that was delivered by taxicab. <laughs> so that's actually how it started, no lie. Over the years, they, I, my understanding, because of course, and this was before my time, my understanding is that they then decided to go big time and hire a driver. His name was Gus and they had a van. <laughs> and then they <laughs> delivered to more people. Anyway, 39 years later with technology and, and many other things, uh, including international wines, we are here. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of revisit 1982. So I'm going to hand it over to Nick to talk a little bit about that. Well, with a very quick overview of 1982, we might remember uh, it was the year that E.T. was released, which was a big thing for lots of kids and people in general. Uh, you had the Commodore 64, Michael Jackson's Thriller was out, and um, I learned as I was looking all these uh, important uh, dates of note up that uh, it was also a particularly good year uh, for the vintage 1982 Bordeaux. Uh, and uh, I thought that that might be something interesting for us to, to hit upon because it, it was uh, apparently the, if I have my information correct, and Chris, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the, the third most legendary uh, vintage of Bordeaux ever. 
it's definitely ranks in in the halls of of the great vintages of our time um it was also a time when a lot of technology was finally starting to surface in wineries in bordeaux uh that really marked a turning period in the crafting of those wines um, around the same time this is right when robert parker is coming to prominence and his guesstimation and his absolute gushing over the wines and giving them critical acclaim from this vintage not only put him on the map it put bordeaux on the map to americans in a way through a light that they'd never seen before um, 82 is also a vintage that in europe it's pretty good everywhere uh, you know, Burgundy, it, it's probably not a, a 10 out of 10 like it is in Bordeaux, but it's pretty darn good. Uh, same thing in Italy and Spain and Champagne. It was, it was a lot like 1990 as a vintage, um, which doesn't, you know, compare in Bordeaux to 82. But 82 is definitely one of those years. Um, and these wines are just absolutely stunning right now. A lot of them are still improving, believe it or not. Uh, and I have yet to really have, uh, you know, less than a handful of 82s that were over the hill. These wines were just really spectacular. Uh, my favorite is uh, Pichon Lalande, Comtesse de Lalande, 1982. It's probably an $800 bottle of wine right now. Um, and a good bottle from a great seller that had a good home will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's just that good. Now that we've covered the vintage of 1982, maybe we could talk a little bit about the grapes in Bordeaux, because I know that each region, as you said earlier, Chris, is very distinctive in terms of the grapes that are available there. So what are the main grapes that you would find grown in Bordeaux? Uh, the main grapes that you would find in Bordeaux, they kind of call it the, the Bordeaux Five, right? So you have Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot, and Malbec. Uh, and that's kind of in order of plantings. Um, I take that back. Uh, Merlot is actually the most widely planted grape in all of Bordeaux. Uh, it's used in the blends on both banks. So Bordeaux is kind of bifurcated regionally into left banks, uh, which is closer to the Atlantic Ocean. Those tend to be more Cabernet Sauvignon dominant wines. And then on the right bank, you have more Merlot dominated wines, but Merlot is definitely in a large proportion on both sides. So technically it's the most widely planted grape. Oh, that's interesting. And then on the white side, is it? On the is white that... side, it's going to be, it's going to be um, uh, Sauvignon Blanc uh, heavy, but you'll also find quite a bit of Semillon and Muscadel. And okay. those last two uh, help contribute to both the sweet and the dry wines. Uh, okay. that are found in this area. I feel like we're talking about wine, so we should taste some wine. I think I might hand it yes. over to Nick because I made Nick pick the wines for today's tasting. So Nick, do you want to tell us what we're going to pour? And then Chris can tell us what it tastes like. All right. This is the totally perverse section of this um, podcast where it's handed over to the uh, kid who was kicked out of French class and is totally unaccredited suggesting... <laughs> <laughs> wines for the sommelier um so today we will be tasting a 2018 uh pardon my french chateau haute boilant blé uh cote de bordeaux rouge 
hopefully that wasn't too massacred. Uh, that's <laughs> the red wine. Uh, moving uh, to a 2019 Chateau Gandoy Perinat, uh, 1281 Bordeaux Blanc, um, and then finishing with a 2019 Les Chatrons uh, Bordeaux Rosé. Um, I should pre uh, uh, preface this by saying that um, all of these wines have, are recent award winners. Uh, and uh, Chris, as I believe you pointed out in a recent video uh, for us in the now tasting section of the Wine Insiders, uh, 2018 was also a, also a, a notable year for uh, for uh, wine production. It was, you know, Bordeaux is on a roll right now. I, I would say 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, these have all been stellar, stellar vintages. Some of them, some of them have been tens, uh, but there's lots of nines and eights, and that's about it. Like these are all fantastic vintages. Let's uh, let's give it a little pour. Maybe we can get some sound effects here. Yeah, I've got. Uh. I've already poured mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I love about Bordeaux is that it is it has a little bit of you know earthiness to it in in like the best way possible. Um, and this wine has that, you know, it's a kind of a combination of these dark berry fruits and a little bit of kind of wet leaves and earthiness and I call it forest floor. Um, but that's, that's what great Bordeaux should smell like. And so this is, this is right on point. Chris, is this something you need to let breathe for a, a certain period is, or is it pretty much good to go right out of the gates? You know, what I do for wines, I don't kind of predetermine anything should be like open or decanted or, you know, I, I don't place that. Uh, and I was taught this when I was working at the French Laundry because I would grab a wine and I'd instantly start throwing it at a decanter. And I remember Paul Roberts uh, coming back to me, Master Sommelier, who was the wine director for the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group. He said, what are you doing? You haven't even tasted it. You haven't smell it. So what I tell people is, you know, uh, open the bottle, pour yourself a glass like I just did and taste it. If you like what it tastes like right there, don't do anything. It's fine. I'll, I always still open it up and taste it. That's just because I want to taste it. Um, but it'll help me really eyeball it. So let me taste this one. So if you're tasting this one, and for those of you out there um, in audio world, it, it, it's, it is grippy, right? It has this nice kind of persistent, kind of almost chalky grip in the front of the mouth. And so, yes, I would, after tasting this one, I think, you know, half an hour to an hour in a decanter, it would do really well. If we can create more surface area in which wine can evaporate, then we're going to get a better smell every single time. So I always give a glass a really quick swirl right before I smell it and take a sip. It doesn't need a chill on it, does it? Sometimes we tell people red wine with a slight chill. I threw all of these in the fridge for 20 minutes and it takes the temperature probably down into that kind of 55, 60 range, okay. uh, which, which, which will be good. Uh, you don't want to drink uh, red wine too warm. And I think all too often, uh, especially here in uh, the United States, we, we do drink uh, our reds too warm and our whites too cold. With a little chill, you won't notice uh, as much of that kind of alcohol hitting you in the face. And you'll get to more of the beautiful flavors that the winemaker intended. So, yep, if it's on the counter and it's red, 20 minutes in the fridge. If it's a white, I pull it out of the fridge for 20 minutes and let it warm up a little bit. Okay. And I think for the flavors on this wine, I believe you said blackberry, blueberry. 
Is that correct? Yeah, or? so this, yeah, I'm getting blackberry, blueberry. There's a lot of dark fruits here. Um, so think like black currant, black cherry. Uh, there's a little bit of this nice kind of smoky, meaty quality to it. Talked about that kind of mushroomy, wet leaves, forest floor thing going on, which is really nice. And then there's this, this ever so classic uh, tinge of a, of a pyrazine. And to me, that's like a, like, a, you know, charring grilled peppers on the grill. Uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful smell. So this wine would seem to be a good grilling wine. So would you pair this to things that are grilled? Um, is this a good... I absolutely would. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it doesn't have to be steak. I think this would actually go really well with a, a good, you know, burnt edges kind of char on a pork chop. Uh, it's got enough weight to carry the wine and the wine won't overpower the food. Uh, I think sometimes with, with steak, it can uh, overpower the wines, even mm -hmm. a Cabernet Sauvignon based wine. So I, I recommend trying to go just a notch lower uh, okay. into, into something like pork. Okay, great. Uh, okay, now we've tasted the red, so uh, I think we are ready to move on to the Bordeaux Blanc. I'm definitely interested to get your thoughts on this one, Chris. Chateau Ganois Prenat, uh, 1281. What does that refer to? Uh, the imposing Bastide in the Entre de Mer region, founded in 1281 by Edward Plantagenet, King of England. And the Duke of Aquitaine is the reason why this wine carries the 1281 on it. That's pretty exciting, actually. I've been watching a lot of really nerdy stuff on Amazon Prime. It's all about the Plantagenets. <laughs> so I'm really glad to see this. But basically, it dates back to a uh, commune where the chateau is actually situated. Yeah, exactly. I'm, sh I'm sure he had really good uh, wine. Hopefully, it was as good as this wine here. And uh, what I like about uh, Bordeaux Blanc and Yes, you can make white wine in this region. In fact, they, they make quite a bit of white wine. Uh, it probably only accounts for about 15% of the total production, um, but they're fantastic wines, largely based off of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, at least for the, the dry wines, which is what we have here today. This is uh, basically a dry uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, you can't tell, but this has a, a nice kind of, you know, medium gold color to it. Uh, and uh, Sauvignon Blanc, when it has this color, uh, it, it usually is derived from some slight uh, aging in an oak barrel, uh, just like its red wine counterparts would be. And I pick up a little bit on this uh, wine, but it's in classic Sauvignon Blanc style. Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, Sauvignon Blanc to me is um, uh, largely dominated by grapefruit and kiwi. So it's very citrus minded. Uh, and we have that here. So I'm getting grapefruit, kiwi, uh, a little bit of lime, a touch of lemon oil. There's a nice kind of grassy green kind of streak that runs through the wine. A little bit of that um, uh, kind of a, a vanilla, smoky caramel from the oak, but just a touch uh, is there on the outside. But what I really love about uh, Bordeaux Blanc is the minerality. And this one has it in spades. It has this nice kind of chalky minerality component to it. That's just really begging for some seafood. I mean, I'm literally getting hungry just thinking about what I would pair this with. And uh, two nights ago, I had a uh, very classic uh, 
bistro mussels that we we steamed and a little court bouillon and some shallots and garlic and white wine and oh it was i had a chablis with it um but I, it was the same concept i picked a really minerally wine for that dish and it was absolutely divine and this would have been uh, an excellent uh substitute for that chablis that sounds like the perfect pairing. This this one actually interestingly just fetched uh, ninety points uh, as a gold winner at the San Diego International Wine Challenge. It doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, dollar for dollar, it'd be hard to beat this wine. This is delicious. Kristen, any comments or thoughts? This wine is actually sustainably farmed and created using sustainable methods, so that's nice. And it says manual pruning. It, this wine appears to have won a lot of gold medals and silver medals around the world, not just in the recent one. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, it's a it's a great wine. Uh, excellent. Well, if you're ready to move on, we can explore the uh, the rosé uh, included in this tasting. Chris, if you would do the honors of pronouncing the name correctly. Le Chateau. Le Chateau. That was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, this is an easy one. Yeah, the perfect. You guys, I don't even need to. I don't even need to correct you. You, you nailed it. <laughs> You're too uh, kind. Now we're moving into the uh, Le Chateau uh, Bordeaux Rosé. This is a uh, 2019. Uh, this is a blend of uh, on the back. It, it gives me the blend, so I'm not a uh, savant here. It's 60% Cabernet Sauvignon, 30% Merlot, and 10% Cabernet Franc. Uh, very typical uh, for a Bordeaux um, <clears throat> rosé. Give it a sniff. Mm, smells good. What I like about rosé is it, it offers you all those kind of very spring, summery aromas of like strawberries and cherries and banana and pineapple, uh, and not in a sweet way, right? I know that this is not going to be a, a sweet wine. You know, generally, alcohol for me is a good indicator of whether a wine is going to be sweet or dry. Typically, 12.5 and higher is going to be dry, but for rosés, based on how they are made, we're, we're going to press the, the skins off of the juice as quickly as we can. Uh, 12 degrees is pretty standard. I know on the palate, this is great. And in rosés, I, I don't recommend serving wine like overly cold, but you know that, uh, that notion that I said earlier about pulling a white wine out of the fridge for 20 minutes before I open it up to kind of let it warm up. I don't do that for rosé. For rosé, you know, I would pull it out of the fridge, pour a glass, and I put the bottle back in. I want to keep it on the colder side. I don't want to, I don't want it bobbing in a, you know, an ice bucket. Um, but you definitely want to keep it nice and cold. And, you know, typically you're drinking rosé when you're out at a pool or a beach or somewhere fun like that where it's hot out. So, you know, keeping your rosé cold will uh, ensure a better experience all around. So I like it just a little bit colder than, than the normal white wine. Chris, what are you normally pairing this with, you think? Um, a Tuesday is pretty good. Um, <laughs> Uh, Recur recurring uh, event. <laughs> uh, poolside. Uh, no, 
in all seriousness, I think rosé works with a lot of lighter fare and not to box it in to a specific area, but I really like it with salads that have a lot of fruit components to them. You know, light salads with like a lemon vinaigrette and some strawberries, and some cranberries or, you know, some caramelized walnuts. That I think is where one of the places that rosé uh, absolutely uh, goes, goes really well. I also like rosé with uh, sashimi. So without, you know, the, the, the nori, because I think nori kind of messes with rosé, but just, you know, straight up great raw fish. You can also do it with crudos as long as there's not a lot of spice involved. Um, rosé is extremely versatile. Um, and uh, I, I really always pigeon it with lighter fare, raw seafood, that kind of thing. Excellent. That all sounds great. Okay, we've tasted a bunch of really great wines from Bordeaux. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Burgundy just towards the end of the program because arguably it's one of the most legendary wine regions. I think for some people it's up there with Champagne in terms of prestige and influence and the origins of winemaking, they're pretty old. So you already talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. You know, for our listeners, we, we don't get a lot of Burgundy in the collection because it is a little bit, as you said earlier, slightly more expensive. It's harder to come by. It's a smaller area. If you had a, like a client of Harper's Club that was going to ask you like, what's Burgundy all about? Is there a word like tradition or something that encapsulates what you think of Burgundy? What's Burgundy all about? Burgundy is all about fractional ownership. And let me explain. In Burgundy specifically, and this is the, one of the big differences between Burgundy and Bordeaux. Bordeaux, the, the, the chateau is, is what's classified and they can buy fruit from anywhere inside uh, their vineyards, outside their vineyards, and they can put it all into the same vat, into the same bottle and still label it, you know, Santa Mignon or Pouillac or whatever. In this part of France, it, the fractional ownership defines the region and fractional ownership is when the, the, the patriarch of the family dies by law, still today, all of the holdings of the vineyards are split evenly amongst the children. And so over time, these vineyards got carved into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And also in Burgundy, the ground is what's classified, not the chateau or the winery. So it's the piece of ground is what is the most important. And there are, there are owners in Burgundies in certain vineyards that they own like two rows of vines, two rows of vines. And maybe depending on how long those rows are, they're able to get like one barrel of wine out of that. And again, kind of talking about how incredibly small Burgundy is to the rest of the global winemaking world. When talking about Burgundy, you have to, in your mind, think of a pyramid. And at the very, very top, and this is less than 1%, are the Grand Cru vineyards of Burgundy. And there's 32 of them. Uh, just below that, you have about 478 Premier Cru's of Burgundy. So that's the next level. And that accounts for about 17% of the vineyards of Burgundy. Below that, you have what's called village wines. So they're a blend of maybe several different 
Premier Cruz, but the second you blend two different Premier Cruz together, two different vineyards, it gets kicked down to the lower level. And that's what most of Burgundy is, right? Um, once again, you can find an amazing amount of value in some of the satellite lesser regions of Burgundy. And uh, there's all of these different communes. And the fun part about Burgundy is that if you understand some of the basics, you're, you're kind of there, right? So Burgundy can be the most complex thing in the world and the easiest region to learn all at the same time. And what I mean by that is there's really only two grapes that are allowed, Pinot Noir for the reds and Chardonnay for the whites. That's kind of it. That really covers about 97% of the production of Burgundy. However, there are thousands of growers, thousands of vineyards, uh, multiple owners of the same vineyards. So you take, you take for example, Clovisot. It's one of the famous Grand Cru vineyards of Burgundy. It has 84 owners. <laughs> some people own 10 rows, some people own one row. But again, it goes back to that fractional ownership. And this is what makes Burgundy so dynamic. There's some appellations that generally are, are more uh, noteworthy, uh, but they're always tied to the most famous vineyard of the area. So in the town of Gevray, there is one particular vineyard that is head and shoulders above all else. And it's called Chambertin, Les Chambertins, if you will. And so the village appended its name to the most famous vineyard. So that's why you end up with Gevray Chambertin. It's just the town of Gevray. And it's just the best vineyard of Chambertin. But everywhere you go, you find that same thing that goes through. At the time when Von Romani was put together, La Romani and Romani Conti were the most famous vineyards. So the town of Vosne, V-O-S-N-E, appended its name with Romani. So you're like, okay, cool. This is starting to make sense. Now, when I go there, and they're almost always hyphenated, right? All of these communes are hyphenated. So the first word is the town, and the second word is the most famous vineyard of the region. Do you have a lot of clients that desire to have Burgundy as part of their collection? Burgundy is all the rage right now, uh, it, it, like embarrassingly. So, um, you know, I've always said that there's a trajectory for wine collectors. So, and almost everyone follows the same trajectory. And I'm really talking about Americans more than anything else. Um, Americans will buy varietally labeled wines, mostly domestic uh, and mostly red in the beginning of their wine collecting journey. And as they get to have other wines from around the world, they move away from the big, powerful uppercut wines of Napa and more into the still powerful, but maybe more interesting wines of Bordeaux and, and, and maybe um, the super Tuscan blends that come from Italy. Uh, past that, they maybe start moving into obscure regions like the Rhone Valley or uh, into you know, parts of Spain like Rioja and, and Priorat. And then they find Burgundy. And Burgundy is about nuance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Burgundy is about nuance. 
uh, in is so much that it's not that uppercut anymore. And it's more about listening to the wine than, you know, getting punched in the face. And everybody, almost everybody ends up at, you know, if you, if you drew like an arc, right? You start at Napa Cabernet, you end in Burgundy. All of my older collectors, what they want to drink, what they enjoy drinking the most, what they enjoy buying the most right now is red and white Burgundy and champagne. So when I ask someone, you know, what are your favorite wines? And they're like, oh, I absolutely love Burgundy. I know where they're at in their arc. Um, and it's not necessarily an age thing, but most likely it's an age thing. You talk to these old like crumudgeon wine collectors that are in their 80s and they've got all of these rooms of Bordeaux, but what they really want to drink is Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can't blame them. All I really <laughs> want to drink is Burgundy too. I just can't afford to do it every day. <laughs> Unless I've got this here, uh, Jean Boulassier Coteau Bourguignon from the 2018 vintage. Yeah, Nick picked out our wines for today. Nick, uh, this is the one you picked today for the tasting, right? Yes, and I was getting a little nerdy with the vintages the more I researched. And I once again stumbled on uh, the fact that 2018 is said to be uh, perhaps rivaling the legendary 1947 vintage, which I, I guess is a pretty big deal. Um, can you speak more to, to that? I, I guess 2018 was great for Burgundy in general. Um, and just curious to get your thoughts on on those yeah rooms. yeah burgundy 18 is is a fantastic vintage uh for both red and white um you know it's kind of a back to, to normalcy if you will and what i mean by normalcy is i mean yields when yields are way down in burgundy they really kind of take it on the chin and this is a one of the few vintages in the last 10 years that has given them what they used to get in, in most vintages um it's a lot like that 82 vintage that we talked about in the regards it was it rained when it should have rained it was sunny when it needed to be sunny it was windy when it needed to be windy and it never really got too hot too dry uh, or too cold and those are kind of the hallmarks of a really good vintage and the the stuffing that's in 18s is like really juicy and vibrant and lively yet it has the ability to drink well now and age uh, if needed. So it's it's one of those just beautifully magical vintages where, you know, you would, if you're buying from a producer, you maybe buy the Grand Cruz and the Premier Cruz and age them and you drink the village wines now because they're just so darn good. I can't wait to taste this one. I'm gonna pour myself a little. Smells good. And I actually let mine decant for the first part of the podcast. So I'm very excited to see if that helped it. I think it definitely would have helped it. I didn't decant any of these wines. I did open them up um, probably about two hours ago and just kind of let the cork stay off of them. Um, this one is still, um, you know, nice and juicy and firm. I think it would do well kind of being in a decanter for the last hour or so. Um, oddly, sometimes Pinot Noir can take longer to open up. It's still confusing to me on why that happens, but it absolutely uh, can happen. I think this wine 
again, served at cellar temperature. So, you know, 55 degrees ish, um, especially for a wine that's more delicate, uh, like a uh, Burgundy versus a Bordeaux. And they both benefit from being served at a lower temperature, but I think Burgundy even more so. You really get into the nuance. And that's what Burgundy is about. Burgundy is about the very delicate aromas that you smell and taste as opposed to the very kind of bold uh, attributes that you get from Bordeaux. They both have uh, a position on the dinner table, um, but Burgundy is, is about listening. Uh, and I think Bordeaux is more like a rock concert. <laughs> I like that. That's a good analogy. I'm going to try to guess the flavor notes. Let me see if I can get it. I don't know. I feel like it's maybe a little bit of red fruit, which I don't know that it should be, but not just, there's like, hmm. No, it's trust your palate. It's red fruit. And Pinot Noir is typically red fruit dominated. You know, think cherries. So certain, That's what it is, like, cherries. Yeah, there's a certain kind of like anchor that I have to, you know, each varietal and, and sometimes region upon that. And for me, Pinot Noir is, is uh, kind of two things. It's, it's cherries and is it red cherries and black cherries or is it a combination depending on where it's grown? If it's a, a warmer client, like, you know, a Russian River and Sonoma Coast where you get tons of uh, warmth and sunlight, those, those Pinot Noirs can be really black cherry dominant. When you go over to Burgundy, where we're at right now, and they're much more red cherry dominant. Uh, the second thing that I always find uh, that surprises people that it's in there and they think it and they put it in their head. Yes, there's a little bit of power suggestion here, but it's cola. So think of Coca-Cola, oh, yeah. but, mm -hmm. but a cola, a cola nut. And it, uh, there is such thing as a cola nut. And it is, it is a descriptor that I think almost always follows Pinot Noir. Do you get, do you get any um, black pepper with this at all? Uh, I get a little bit of black pepper, but only some very small amounts. But what I do get that's, I think, really more indicative of red burgundy is black tea. So you, you kind of, you feel the tannins. It's more of like a, um, you know, the tannins that we got on the Bordeaux were more like espresso. And this is more like black tea. So they're a little finer grained. They're more delicate um, and almost like a, like a talcum powder if you were to try to visualize it versus the sand that you might get out of Bordeaux. Now, just, just clarification for everyone that's listening, there is not sand in Bordeaux and there's not talcum powder in Burgundy. I just, I like to think of texture and I think of things in three-dimensional shapes because they help me reference them and describe them. And that's how I would describe the tannins in Bordeaux as more sandy. And for Burgundy, it's more talcum powder. It's much, much smaller and much finer on the palate. This is a really good, really good wine <laughs> and a really good value, <laughs> really good wine. Before we let you go, I think Nick and I each have a question for you. I had a different question, but now I kind of want to ask about the eighties. I want to find out when you think about the eighties, what are your, what are your favorite things that you're nostalgic for? Cause there's so many things to be nostalgic for from like 
you know, I used to play video games in the basement with my brother or like, you know, putting your quarter on the game at the arcade. There's, there's just so many different things. What are you nostalgic for, for the eighties, Chris? Ah, let's see. Uh, 1980, I was six years old. And so it's, uh, I, I definitely relate to the E.T., uh, I remember, I never got the Commodore 64, but it had this cool little wheel on the joystick uh, and, you know, my more affluent neighbors had it. It's super cool. Um, thriller. I mean, I think I used to do that dance move yeah. in synchrony. <laughs> yes. With, Didn't we all? Come on. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was definitely younger throughout the 80s. I, I remember... Uh, a lot of bad apparel, uh, a lot of bad clothing, a lot of bad yes. hair. Yes. Um, but well, I think <laughs> none of us were old enough to drink, but wine coolers no. were a thing, weren't they? Wine, weren't wine coolers a thing? I feel like I remember yeah, my I, parents bringing home wine coolers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ernest and Julio Gallo. I think I think that's exactly when the wine cooler craze yeah. started hitting, and then and then kind of white Zinfandel was on the heels of that um uh late 80s early 90s i feel like is is when white zinfandel the behringer white zinfandels of the world uh kind of came out you know we're thinking about getting white zinfandel and i think part of it is you know one of the things that wine insiders like we're just super fans of wine <laughs> so like all wine trends are of interest like we're just excited about everything and there's, there is someone who loves it and that means we're going to love it. Like there's nothing that, you know, we're not thinking about carrying. It's more of what we, we think our customers are going to want. So we're actually looking at maybe getting some white Zinfandel. So we may have to have you back for that episode too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll and, talk you know, about the eighties again. <laughs> yeah. Like anything else, white Zinfandel is being made a lot better. You know, when you approach, yeah. you're saying, okay, I'm going to grow these Zinfandel grapes purposely to make white Zinfandel in a, in a, in a quality zone that is not going to be reminiscent of the past, you can, you can do some pretty good uh, expressions. And I've had some pretty good expressions of like super high quality uh, white Zinfandel, uh, as funny as that is. Um, but it's, it's definitely out there. I think it's like movies, you know, I like to watch some of the more thoughtful, artful, films oscar winners but i love pirates of the caribbean <laughs> who doesn't i think white Zinfandel is my pirates of the caribbean <laughs> my yeah. jack sparrow I mean, yeah exactly the yeah. only reason that i would ever put on mascara is to <laughs> halloween you have you just had a son you that that day's coming dude <laughs> i know i can't wait <laughs> you're gonna have wait. to start dressing up for halloween i'm sorry nick you were gonna say something oh i was just gonna put this uh this 80s thing to rest with uh, my horrible segue of um, taking us back to the future here uh, and asking you, <laughs> you've got so many things happening at all times, so many ventures. Are there projects that you're excited about that you have coming up that you, that you would share with everybody? Um, I, I do. I've got a, 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 a media project that's, that's coming up. Um, I have partnered with a client of mine, Adrian Gonzalez, who's a first baseman, former first baseman for the LA Dodgers. Uh, and we're going to do a, uh, a fun show on uh, 
food, wine, fitness, sports, uh, et cetera, travel uh, when we can. Uh, and that's uh, in the works. That'll be out uh, shortly. We've got like 14 episodes in the can. We just got to figure out what our platform is going to be to release that. And um, what's the best way to learn about this? Is there, should people be following you somewhere on your Instagram or uh, checking Yeah, out? I've got a couple of different accounts. Um, uh, we have uh, obviously uh, at Harper's Club uh, is for the, the lifestyle brand that we have there and uh, that entity. I've been miffed at the lack of a, a massive stronghold of library wines in Napa. You, know, you go to Bordeaux and there's several negociants that you walk in in their warehouse and there's just rows and rows and rows of boxes and boxes and boxes of all of this amazing old wine. And there's nothing like that in Napa. So I'm putting together a investment fund for uh, the, the wines of Napa to hopefully start that. And in 50 years, uh, Someone will be able to walk into a big warehouse and there'll be cases and cases and cases of rows and rows and rows of old, old Napa wine. That's um, great. That's amazing. <laughs> I want to know more about yeah. that. We're, we're yeah. going to talk more. That's so great. Yeah. And of yeah. course you've got, you've got so much going with us too. I always like to remind people that, that if, I mean, any, for anybody that's listened to this and enjoyed this episode, I would encourage people to check out all your great, um, tasting videos that you've done that people can find at our um at our youtube channel the wine insiders channel um, yeah, yeah absolutely it's, it's so much fun to go through those wines i mean for those of you listening yes this is part of my job i have to drink wine for a living and talk to people about it uh but it's why i the wine you know you know they say do what you love and you you don't work a day in your life and i i chose wine as what i loved and i don't feel like i've, I've worked a day in my life and it's a it's a pleasure and honor to, to work with you guys at Wine Insiders and, uh, you know, who else gets a, a case of wine delivered to their doorstep every month that uh, <laughs> they, they have to drink and share with the world. It's such a tough, you know, uh, cross that I bear, uh, but I'll keep doing it happily. Wow. We're so, so glad to have you on the panel and it's just You've, you've pioneered all of what we're doing. So it's just so exciting to have you here today. So thank you so much again for joining us. For yeah, the thank you for the tour through uh, Burgundy and Bordeaux. Yeah, so great. Um, well, great. Well, that's a wrap for the Bordeaux and Burgundy episode. We tasted a lot of great wines. And thank you both, Nick, for putting a lot of this together and Chris for all of your expertise because it's just so great to get your input on all of the stuff. Sounds Thank good. You. I'm here for you. <laughs> Thanks again, Chris. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Chris. Today we tasted four wines from Bordeaux and Burgundy. 2018 Chateau Aubois Blaye Cote de Bordeaux Rouge. 2019 Chateau Gandoy Perinat 1281 Bordeaux Blanc. 2019 Le Chartrand Bordeaux Rosé. And 2018 Jean Boisselier Cote Bourguignon Rouge. You can find these wines, as well as information on the history of Wine Insiders and our anniversary celebrations, on our website. WineInsiders.com. Leaders in online wine. Get better wine delivered in just days. Red, red wine goes to my head, makes me forget that I...
still need you so oh.